Dear willing participants, if you are anything like me, you love your horror family. A community of like-minded spirits, filled with love, support, and evil motherfucker clowns. It is in this spirit that I encourage you to visit my lovely new friends, Danielle and Anthony, over at GhoulishCast, or visit their website, somethingghoulish.com, where you can read their take on the Soska Sisters remake of Rabid. I'm going to hand over to the cast of GhoulishCast, so they can explain everything for themselves. Hey creeps, my name is Anthony Darrington and I co-host Ghoulish Cast, the flagship horror movie podcast from Something Ghoulish. Each week on the show, we chat with creators across the industry about their work in genre media, from authors to directors and everyone in between. We uncover behind-the-scenes information about our favorite films directly from the source. You can find Ghoulish Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere else you find your podcasts. And remember, don't scream. You'll want to hear this. Thank you, my lovely horror family. Now back to the show. Good evening, willing participants. Tonight I'll be talking about the 2002 Hong Kong horror film The Eye from the Pang Brothers. It was released at around the time that interest in Japanese horror specifically, and Asian horror generally, was at a peak with Western audiences. Hideo Nakata's Ring and Ring 2, along with Juon the Grudge, introduced us to a world of vengeful ghosts with hair as long as 1960s Cher, who would appear out of the shadows, exerting their malevolent influence by making their victims cough up long dark hair before they died horribly. I was not immune to this. In fact, the first time I saw Ring, I was so frightened by it that I threw a cloth over the telly and hid the remote control in my knicker drawer. Many more films with that same mood of creeping, escalating terror followed. Films like Pulse, Dark Water, and Shutter all presented variations on that same theme. Hollywood quickly got in on the act and remade Ring as The Ring in 2002 with Naomi Watts. They also released a version of The Grudge in 2004, which starred Sarah Michelle Gellar. But really, by that time, the novelty was running thin, and the movement was running out of steam. Recent attempts to revive both the Ring and Grudge franchises have ended badly. Both of the latest Hollywood releases, a sequel named Rings, and the reboot of The Grudge, have been critical disasters. All the same, I retain a great deal of fondness, both for Asian horror and for the Hollywood films that were inspired by them, which is why I wanted to look back at The Eye. This film didn't generate as much interest as some of those other titles, but it is still a splendidly spooky tale. Now then, let me tell you a story about this film. I went to see it at the Film House Cinema in Edinburgh. I love the Film House. It is a small art house cinema that often showed hard-to-find horror films, or foreign horror films that just didn't show in the regular multiplexes. However, I was used to their equipment failing, In fact, just one week prior, a film had been cancelled when their projector chewed up the film. So I had just settled in, and I had opened a box of Maltesers, and the film was about to start when it happened again. The film went askew, the screen went white. Oh 
bugger, I thought. Not this again. And I waited patiently for the house lights to come up. When... A malevolent face suddenly appeared on screen, accompanied by a scream of terror at full volume from all of the speakers all around me. Sit tight, said a title card cheekily, and then the film proper began. I can tell you all this without spoiling anything. This fake-out opening is not included on the DVD or the streaming release, and it is not as if it would work on the television anyway. But as I picked up my Maltesers and threw away my underwear, I had to admit it had really worked on me that night. When the story proper begins, we are introduced to a young woman named Mon Wong. She is blind, having lost her vision at the age of two. We meet her as she receives a corneal transplant from the eyes of an anonymous... from the eyes of an anon... anon I apologise, I've been drinking from the eyes of an anonymous donor. She is fussed over by her sister and her overprotective mother, and we wait as they all wait, impatiently to see if Mon's vision will be restored when the bandages are removed. Well, of course it is willing participants. On account of it would be a fucking short film if not. So Mon is naturally delighted, but also a little apprehensive. Suddenly having her vision restored is psychologically challenging, and she's assigned a psychotherapist to help her re-establish a visual relationship to the world. The psychotherapist, Dr. Wah, is a young fellow, and there's clearly some attraction between the two. Dr. Wah warns Mon that during this transition period, her visual senses may betray her as her brain attempts to process all of this new data. Consequently, Mon doubts much of what she sees. And it doesn't help that not everything she sees can be explained. For you see, after the transplant, Mon starts having visions. They are blurry, just out of reach and out of focus. Is that dark shadow she sees in the hospital corridor really there? Or is it just a phantom from her subconscious? To be honest, willing participant, it is not much of a mystery. We're watching a horror film after all so you can relax and forget all of that subconscious bollocks. It is so a ghost. If nothing else, Mun can tell from the disturbing noises. A gasping death rattle, a long agonized moan, a slow sob of pure despair. May I take you out of the moment, willing participants? I do apologize, but I must talk about the sound design of this film. That ghostly sighing. The ahs, the shushes, they seem to come at you from all directions. First to your left, then to your right, and then, and then, it whispers right in your ear. Shit, shit, it's right behind me, it's right behind me. Oh, bollocks, there go my Maltesers again. This film does that. A lot. I'm not sure if I'd call these moments jump scares as such. They're more like FUCK scares. And by the way, thank goodness for that word, or I would have screamed from my mummy for the entire first half of this film. But back to Mun. While I was talking about the sound design, Mun has been discharged from the hospital. But even here, her macabre visions follow her. Mun's apartment shifts and changes before her eyes. It swims out of focus. Shadows spread. They become furniture she doesn't have. Rearranged and 
older, and she begins to encounter more sad, terrified, lonely spirits. They walk the halls of her apartment building, looking for lost things and obsessing over tiny details. What I like about this film is that souls at unrest are not scary due to their being dead. They are scary because they are like packets of unresolved emotion suddenly exploding in your face. Now, I must admit, there are those of us who enjoy Asian horror and those who do not. That is quite alright. As any horror fan can tell you, there are many subgenres. The slasher, the ghost story, the house invasion. Horror fans know all of this, and we know that not all types are for all of us. If you are not a fan of Asian horror, then I suspect my description of the film up to this point will not have won you over, and quite right too. If you are not a fan of films in which women with long hair leap out at you and go, then this is not the film for you. But for myself, I have a real love for ghost stories, and I find the Asian take on ghosts stimulating and spooky. That whole coughing up dark hair thing is a bit weird if you ask me, and it does make me worry that my cat Vincent Price might be possessed by an Asian woman. But other than that, I'm into these films, and The Eye is one of the best examples of the subgenre that I've seen. What these ghosts say is not particularly frightening. What makes these ghosts scary is how strange and unexpected they are. For the first half of this film, the directors exploit Mun's condition and have spirits coming at the audience every time she looks at something. Some of these ghosts work better than others. A spirit, who I shall call Weird Licky Tongue Woman, is just silly and not at all scary, although I would like to give her my phone number. But another ghost Mun encounters in a calligraphy class gave me one of those wonderful moments in horror when you daren't look at the screen, but also you daren't look away. However, the directors very sensibly slow things down at this point. Jump scares are fine, but if you overindulge in them, they lose their impact. So once it has been established that these spirits are unsettling, the Pang brothers go for the slow burn scare, which is all about the suspense. In one of the best sequences I've seen in a horror film, Mon encounters a ghost in a lift, which is both a terrific and an evil idea, because it happens so bloody slowly. Mon realises, to her horror, that she is trapped in a small space with something, and the floors up to her apartment go by, one by one by one. The tension ratchets up, and I hide behind a cushion. Now, I feel that a good ghost story always has an equally good mystery behind it, not so much a whodunit, but a why haunts it. In my favourite films, potential ghostbusters spend most of their time trying to figure out what the ghost wants, and for me, it depends entirely on how satisfying that resolution is, which determines how successful the film is. For example, the changeling, or the ring, or the devil's backbone, all have terrific mysteries that gradually unfold. Oftentimes, this leads to a revelation on how to lay the spirit to rest, or, in the case of the ring, the horrific realization that the spirit can never be laid to rest. 
The eye is no exception to this rule. And so in the eye, Mum teams up with her psychotherapist slash boyfriend Wa as they track down the mysterious donor of her eyes and attempt to solve the mystery. I must tell you now that this is the part of the film where the tension and terror ebbs away because the explanation is just not that scary. I think the film is right to take us where it does because the filmmakers owe us an explanation for all the supernatural malarkey but unfortunately, when the film starts providing answers, it stops providing scares. And the motivation of this ghost seems weaker than usual, and the resolution, such as it is, is not particularly satisfying. So, the last 30 minutes of The Eye are definitely not as strong as the first hour. The film devolves into messages about the gift of seeing beauty in the world, but how it is paired with the curse to see suffering and death. Not that this is untrue, it's just a little bit glib and dull. But now it's that time again. It is my sad duty to bring you the Pets in Peril alert. Pets in Peril alerts. For those of us who find chainsaws to the groin fun family entertainment, but just the sight of a sad little kitten can drive us from the room in tears. Willing participants. In the course of the eye, a rat explodes. Now... I'm aware this may not upset all of you. You may be amongst that cruel, uncaring group who are quite happy to see rodents combust. However, I would remind you that this rat wasn't doing anyone any harm and was just sitting there, happy as you please, in a sewer, in his home, when he's consumed by a fireball. A tragic story. I'm sure you'll agree. Many people die in this film too, but they do not have adorable whiskers and a tail. So, fuck them. That was a Pets in Peril alert. Alerting you to Pets in Peril. So to recap, while I think The Eye is a terrific horror film, and definitely worth your time, the ending is much, much weaker than the opening. But I forgive it a lot, based on the scares within that first half of the film. As a film, I would rate this a 3 out of 5. It's an intriguing and fun mystery film, and the acting is all fine. As a horror film, it's a 4 out of 5 from me. It has an excellent central premise, extremely effective sound design, and is far stronger than the insipid American remake starring Jessica Alba from 2008. The Eye was followed by two in-name-only sequels, The Eye 2 and then The Eye 10. No. I don't understand that either. Let us put it down to inflation. I recall renting the I-2 and rushing home eagerly to see it, only to be intensely disappointed. It tells the story of a young woman named Joey, who has been having an illicit affair with a fellow named Sam. Desperately unhappy, Joey attempts to take her own life in a Thai hotel, and after swallowing a bottle of pills, she loses consciousness only dimly aware that her bed is surrounded by shadowy, malevolent spirits. Fortunately for Joey, the attempt on her own life is discovered and she is saved. Not only that, but she discovers that she is pregnant with Sam's baby. She returns to Hong Kong, only to find that he is not returning her calls. She determines to keep the child and raise it as her own, but her pregnancy is disturbed by strange figures. They stare at her from the distance, silent always watching, but not particularly threatening. As her pregnancy continues, 
she notes with horror that a long-haired spirit often appears around women closer to delivery than she is. The spirit lurks in dark corners, only coming close when the women are about to go into labour, sliding out of the darkness and moving up to their, um, uh, that is, toward their, um, well, you know, where the babies come from. Their, um, their special secret woman's place. Their, um, uh, their lady garden area. Their, their foof, their fanjo, their flange. You know where I mean. I have to tell... Hello, Vincent Price. This is my co-presenter, Vincent Price. He just put fur all over the microphone. I have to tell you now that I did not find the idea of ghosts going up a hoo-ha particularly frightening. Perhaps this is my gender bias at work. Maybe if this film were about evil spirits disappearing at my willy, I would be more disturbed by it. It is a distinct possibility. But the main problem with the I2 is that it feels like a very different film. Not just because it is a different story with different characters, this time the mood is different too. This film has a curious daytime soap opera feel to it, complete with sappy music and terrible acting. The Pang brothers seem to have lost all interest in trying to scare us. There are one or two jump scares, but they are nowhere near as imaginative or as strange as they were in the previous film. It's just some unexpected dude with soot on his face. There's even a semi-repeat of the lift scene in I2, but it is nowhere near as scary or suspenseful as the previous film. It's louder, and it's ham-fisted, and it's cliched. I was really surprised that this film was made by the same team. Strangely enough, though, this time the mystery is a lot better, and the secret as to why Joey is being haunted makes a lot more sense. But I didn't care. The poor acting, the direction, and the script had bored me to tears by this time, so I'm afraid it is a big fat one out of five for the I-2, both as a film and as a horror film. As for the I-10, I have sadly been unable to locate it, although, I have to admit, I didn't try too hard after having seen I-2. Thank you once again for your company tonight, willing participants. I hope you have enjoyed listening to me driveling on about ghosts and Maltesers and whatnot. Do join me next time, wherein I shall be discussing two films on the theme of outdoors camping horror. I shall be talking about the 1977 Canadian film Rituals, starring Hal Holbrook, and also Jeff Lieberman's 1981 slasher, Just Before Dawn, featuring George Kennedy. As for the eye, if I have managed to intrigue you, then I would encourage you to watch the original, despite the subtitles. This reminds me, I started this episode by stating that interest in Asian horror waned after that initial wave of spooky tales, but that was really only half true. While we may have become less interested in Sadako, Kayako, and those other wonderfully spooky women with their long dark hair, those films really opened a door for people like me. Since that first wave, I have been introduced to the wonderfully stylish and gloriously violent films of Takashi Miike, and it goes without saying that South Korean horror has won me over too. Films like Train to Busan, The Wailing, and The Host successfully mix social commentary with horror in a way that I haven't seen since the new wave of American horror in the 70s. Of course, all this climaxed with the recent, and well-deserved, triumph of Parasite at the Oscars. Therefore, I would encourage listeners to treat the 
scared little man comments of Donald Trump regarding Parasite's victory with the contempt that they deserve. But the fact is that all of these talented filmmakers have opened a new world of horrors to us, and I am intensely grateful to Hideo Nakata, Takashi Miike, Bong Joon-ho, and all of their peers for allowing us to share in their vision. Have fun, willing participants. I encourage you to explore their terrifying visions with abandon. But don't say, I didn't warn you. Good night. Massacre was recorded in Paraparomu, New Zealand. Your host was Val Thomas. This episode was produced by Katie Miller. If you have any requests, comments, or if you just want to say hi, you can tweet us at Podcast Massacre or find us on Instagram or Facebook. If you like this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you source your podcasts. Thank you for listening and pleasant dreams. (laughs) 